Welcome to the Security Serengeti Podcast. We're your hosts, David Swinter and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast. Leave us an awesome five-star review and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter. We're here to talk about cybersecurity and technology news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical applications that you can take into the office to help you protect your organization. And as usual, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are, are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. I've been adding Matthew Keener as my hero to the podcast website and white text for years at this point. Eventually, it'll get there. So on that subject, our first article is the poisoning of chat GPT from, we saw it via Bruce Schneier's blog, but the actual website is softwarecrisis.dev. And it is about how incredibly easy it is to poison these large language models via both training data and via prompt data. And I thought it might be interesting to talk about what some of the consequences of that may be. So according to the article, and it references about 12 different papers, and we'll talk about one of those papers in a bit, but I, I did not go and read all 12 of those papers because I did not have time. So we're basing this off the article, which is a summary of those. According to the article, it only takes around 100 examples to poison a keyword so it is arbitrarily negative or arbitrarily positive, which is either a SEO nightmare or an opportunity, depending on which side of this you are. If you could stand to make money off it, that's probably phenomenal for you. The attacks don't require specific knowledge about the internals of the AI. They can change the sentiment from positive to negative or negative to positive. They can change the meaning, giving you forced mistranslations, which actually reminds me, I'm sure uh, the, the Rick Santorum thing by Dan Savage like a decade ago. Do you remember mm, that ringing a bell for me? So I'm not going to say what it means because it's disgusting. And if you want to know, you can look it up yourself. But Dan Savage decided to name something disgusting Santorum after Rick Santorum's last name. And enough people posted about it on the internet that for a large period of time, when you searched for his last name, you got the definition. That's genius. <laughs> what did, did he have something in particular against Santorum or, or, or no? It had to do, there's something about gay, something about some gay law. There you go. Campaign for the, oh my God, it was 20 years ago, 2003. Yeah, because of Rick Santorum's views on homosexuality and comments about same-sex marriage. So, yeah. 2003. Wow. Nothing's new. Nothing is new. <laughs> or finally, you can change the quality. You can reduce the quality of the output, although that seems less useful than the others. Which makes me wonder, is this now time to start seeding information about ourselves everywhere? Do I need to start creating hundreds of blog posts about how wonderful I am? So that if somebody puts my name into chat GPT, that's going to come back with Matthew Keener is the best. You should hire him immediately. He can do literally everything. Well, what, maybe what you need to do is just create a Twitter bot. Ooh. Depending on how much information you want to put out there. If you just want to say, you know, Matt is great. I need 150 characters, plenty of space. That's, and you know what though too is a, is a Twitter bot. Actually, what you probably want to do you probably want to use a couple different venues because you don't want it to be all in one, like a blog or a Twitter bot or a, a videos or something like that. But if you set it up with AI generating it, then you can, then it's all going to be different. You're not going to have the exact same message every time. 
Yeah, you have to spread through Mastodon and Facebook yeah. posts. And... Yeah, yeah, because that'll because that works with the search rankings, right? The more sources that say it, the more authority it's given. Huh. Yeah, that that's, that's worked so so well to get us a lot of listeners to the podcast. So. Well, that's because none of us post about anything. I mean, maybe that's <laughs> what we should do with the Twitter bot. We should create a create a create a bot to post to a bunch of different social networks because we've done no advertising for this. Well, we did a little bit of advertising one time. But we have not actively been doing much to try and gather listeners. Anyways, apparently you can also use the props to poison because the props are fed back into the model for fine tuning. Hmm, Uh, That's interesting. I don't know exactly how you would do that, but that is interesting. So, I mean, it's a fairly simple article. You you know, the, the, well, the thing is, in order to get out of it what you want, you have to correctly prompt it. So if you put in a leading prompt, then gotcha. maybe, you know, that is going to start skewing things also. Like what we talked about on Wednesday, where it's like, answer the question, what are the causes of the civil war from the perspective of a Southern politician or something right. like that? <laughs> yeah. And it gives a very, it gives a very different answer than if you ask it, you know, from the persona of a, you know, Northern politician or a soldier or a farmer or a plantation owner. Right. Exactly. That would be interesting. Yeah, because then you could, that would actually, you know what, you know, you're right. Because that would make a lot more sense if you're looking to do sentiment changing. Because you could say, you know, give me your opinion of Joe Biden from the persona of a Trump supporter. And it would produce completely negative output. And if you do that several times, you could probably start, that would probably start like like trending a little bit for the prompt. Yeah, no, that would be almost as good as, you know, give me your opinion of Joe Biden as if you're Kamala Harris. Then it's just a bunch of hysterical laughter. Actually, now I'm curious. What does that give in your opinion, Joe Biden, the perspective of Harris? Yeah, I hope he dies. No, it's not very good. Yeah. It's depressing. I'm sad. Because that, you know, that made me think of the LBJ. You know, when, when Kennedy came to him and said, hey, why don't you be my vice president? He was not too enthused with the idea initially. And then he asked someone, I can't remember who it was exactly, somebody on his staff, to research what are the odds of a president dying in office? And the guy came back with the odds and and LBJ was like, okay, I think that's workable. (laughs) And he decided to join on as the VP because of the odds that Kennedy was going to die in office. That Uh, is... Hmm. And of course, I don't know if he, if, if at the time he knew he was going to put his thumb on the scale or yeah. if, you know, he just liked the odds out of the gate and then just tilted him a little bit in his favor later. Yeah. The I mean, idea that Kennedy was the youngest president, later. right? Uh, so like, yeah, he was 46. Yeah. I think he's still the youngest. Obama was not much older though. I was like the sixth or seventh youngest. He was. Oh, really? God, he was eight. Wow. Eight out of 45 presidents have died while in office. That is four from assassination and four from natural causes. That is actually a pretty, that's not quite 20%. That's like 16% or something. Yeah. And, and, and if you cut that down to at the time Kennedy was, was in office, the odds are even better. Cause none of them, yeah. Cause none of them have died since he was like 37 or something. So eight out of like 30, that's higher than 20%. Wow. Look at this. There's actually, today the U.S. sets a record for not having had a president die in office. It has been 8, 18,967 days 
since the U.S. president has died in office. This is the longest period without losing the president to an assassination or an illness. Yeah. Well, I mean, ever since ever since Reagan beat the Indian curse, there's a supposedly an old Indian oh, curse. Oh, curse, yeah. Yeah, any huh. president elected in a year that ends in zero will die in office. And that was true up until Reagan. Oh, Reagan. Or George He's W. The first Bush, one. depending on who you All right. Anyways, all right. So, so my first, my first real question on this one is who has the resources or the desire to do this? Cause if it's only a hundred needed, even a small company could, if they really wanted to. Well, it really depends on that training set. You know, we were talking about, you know, if mm-hmm. you have a Twitter bot, you could do this as yeah. an individual, if you cared enough about. Right. And, and if, and if it's primarily using, you know, if it's primarily using social media for its data set then you could have an account in each social media site and skew that stuff via a bot or something for each one of those, I think, in whatever favor it is. But of course, that also talks about, you know, what the headwinds are for your perspective. You know, if no one cares that Matt Greener is their hero, you aren't going to get a counter narrative to that. So you're probably more likely to succeed in getting that in the model as true or something along those lines versus, no. you know, is Joe Biden great or not? Or no, that's, a, yeah, that's a good point. Folks on both sides. Yeah. I, and you know what? I wonder if it also matters how much conflict there is. Because with something like politics, where there's already an enormous amount of people on either side of it versus something where mostly everybody's agreed, I wonder how much weight it gives things where yeah, like to you the, know to the outlier or yeah to, to the um, outliers yeah because on politics or i mean so politics the model is going to look at everybody doing when it's going to try and predict and it's going to come up with shit just all over the map but if it's if it's coming up with something where almost everything agrees but there's this one little thing over here there's like a hundred things over here yeah it's be interesting hmm. i don't know well that's you know that's, that's an interesting idea because if you think back on different things that were the minority opinion that turned out to be true, you know, germ theory, you know, the earth circling the sun and stuff like that. You know, how many things that are currently going on where the minority opinion is actually, in fact, the correct opinion, but it simply yeah. hasn't reached consensus. You know, people don't concede that that's true or not yet. And, you know, the earth is flat. Hey, there, I, I, surprisingly enough, there's, a, there are some folks out there that still believe that, which is I know. bizarre, yeah. but with the amount of propaganda from governments and the media and everything, the minority, it's, it'd be hard to convince anybody of what the, what something is that's true. That's a minority opinion today. I think yeah. if, if you don't get the backing of those groups. Yeah. That's, that's actually where I see this being most useful is governments that want to do things like erase atrocities from the search results or mm. that want to poison the search results like opposing tribal or country group like uh, China would love to, I'm sure, put stuff that would justify their invasion of Taiwan. I, I don't know what exactly they would do in there or maybe minority groups that they wanted to get rid of. It's long been a trope or a method of governments that you if you have someone that you want to get rid of you accuse them of something heinous and that justifies your removal or mm-hmm. pogrom or whatever you want to do right or you know we were talking about the conspiracy theories a bit if if that makes it into the final podcast but it'd be interesting if like there was a conspiracy theory that was a little too close to the truth like maybe it wasn't exactly right but they're like huh we need to we need to stop people from looking at this 
Oh, so they just use it to nudge the uh, the concept a little bit? Yeah, like if people like look up or ask ChatGPT, you know, at what temperature do steel beams melt? <laughs> ChatGPT is like 10,000 degrees Kelvin. It's impossible for jet fuel to melt. Yeah. And the final final thing that I see here is actually reputational damage. Like we talked before about how you could create a Twitter bot or it's, poss- it's, it's probably going to be within the realm of a single person to do this. What if someone really hated you and they decided to poison the results with something awful, like that you were a sexual predator or that you were a murderer or something like that? And now with Midjourney and ChatGPT, you could create fake photos and videos and verbal testimony and you could do like faked phone conversations and then post it everywhere. So honestly, that's not that different than now. You could just do that now too. So I don't know if this is especially relevant to the AI thing, but. Well, you know where this is leading then when you're talking about that is you're leading every person to have their own personal protective AI that is monitoring the internet sediment for them. And then when there's a, a narrative like that, that's being propagated through the internet, then your AI tweets. Right, exactly. Your AI, your defensive AI kicks in and starts putting out counter narratives to whatever that is. Have you ever, you, you haven't, we talked about Accelerando a couple months ago. Did you, you talked about getting the audiobook of that? Yeah, I actually just listened to it. I, didn't, I actually didn't care for it. Ouch, ouch. I just finished it finally. But at one point in time, they're talking about reputational markets mm-hmm. instead of like economic markets. But yeah, that made me think of that. Like that would be interesting. Anyways. Right, because I think if, if I remember correctly in the book, because they were like actually trading on reputation. Yeah. So you could do certain things or you could get credit or whatever based on it. I actually didn't pay any attention to what they did with the reputation. But yeah, they're talking about like trust bubbles and <laughs> it's just wacky. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean, I, he, he, the author in that book writes a lot like Gibson and I have a hard time with Gibson too. He does have a he does have a tough writing style. I would agree. Although you know Gibson's okay, yeah. But I have a hard time following Gibson's stories. They seem to be all over the place. And this guy was along the same line. It just seemed to he seemed to throw so much at you, which was just hard to keep track. Yeah, he yeah. There, I had to go through and like highlight the specific things that I was like, all right, so this is a concept that I need to look more into. He has another book called Halting State, which is really hard to read too. He seems to prize himself on creating hard to read prose, but Halting State is written in second person. It's the only book I've ever read that is written in second person. So where it's like, you do this, you do that, you wake up this morning and go take a shower. That's bizarre. Isn't it? it I, the first time I read it, I had to stop and be like, what is going on here? I don't understand this. I wonder how difficult that was to do. I don't know. It was so weird. It was a good story. It was about a it was about a near future Scottish Yard, Scotland Yard detective investigating internet related crimes. It was like a scam group, but it was yeah, he writes very much like near future stuff and some mm-hmm. far future stuff. But I don't know. If you didn't like Accelerando, I don't know if you'd like that one. I don't know. He, like I said, he so he definitely seems to deliberately make it hard to read his stuff. Why would you do that? I don't know. <laughs> All right. 
So I, I did have one kind of snarky comment that I wrote down about isn't training from the internet basically poisoning itself because just <laughs> large swaths of the internet are nonsense where people are just shit posting whatever they want. So right. I don't know. I don't know that training from the internet's terribly productive if you want factual, accurate information. Half of it's shit posting, half of it's media, which you can't trust, and the other half's government. It's, it's really difficult. The whole idea about having a decent data set is just difficult because how much of everything is an opinion? You know, if you read yeah, history, yeah. there's always a slant to the history, you know? Yeah, because everybody has a bias. So I don't know if there's any way to get around it. It's just, I don't know. No. Yeah. All right. You had some notes here. You tried, you actually tried to read one of the papers that was linked off here, which I feel bad for you. I did. Well, oh man, I didn't tell the paper in here. Hold on. I was the, it was the last linked paper. It was called on the impossible safety of large AI models. Right. So I said it was only 20 pages. It was only 20 pages. So I figured I was going to read through that and pull out some useful <laughs> information from it. And that was a terrible mistake. Because reading through this, I couldn't even get through, I think I got to page two, maybe page three. And then I ran across a couple of nuggets here. The first one being poisoning the training data with hateful, violent, or harmful content. I was like, that is not something we should be worrying about. I mean, the, you know, cause it's all, it's, that's like opinion about, you know, what's hateful, what's not hateful. You know, you should be more concerned about whether it's true or not. If it's opinion, that should be weighted differently. And there's another one in here that says, while around 10 to the eighth books are only a fraction, only a fraction of them are arguably trustworthy. Many books are instead full of bias and dangerous misinformation, such as ethic, ethnic based hate speech, historical propaganda, or outdated and possibly harmful medical advice. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is what you were saying before about how everything is someone's opinion until it's factually verified and very few things are factually verified and not, almost nothing historically is factually verified. Right. And, and this makes me fear for just the very idea of science and scientific progress, you know, for the future. Because if this paper is an indicator of the folks, folks in the scientific community, then we've got a lot of smart morons that are actually attempting to move the needle on improving things from a scientific perspective. And we're just going to get absolute fricking garbage if they are this biased and opinionated in their academic work or in so their scientific work. I, I kind of agree with their conclusion, but I don't like the way they frame it. So, I, I mean, I would argue that most books are probably wrong, I, I, but they can still be useful. I think I don't, I don't like the fact that they said are instead full of bi biases and dangerous misinformation. Like that is a very negative framing of it. Like, as we've talked about this before, like there's so many books about like the, how the brain works and stuff or how habits are formed. And they're almost certainly wrong in certain ways, but they can still be useful. And there's, and there's books, you know, Shakespeare and Homer and Marcus Aurelius, like those are almost certainly wrong in some of the things that they say, but they're still incredibly useful books. Well, and that can be a bias because like we just yeah. said a minute ago, all humans are biased. Yeah. But to, to frame all books as dangerous you know, misinformation, <laughs> dangerous yeah. misinformation and pitting the ethnic group, the, you know, the ethnicity, yeah. the off author against everybody else's ethnicity 
or the time period in which it was written, you know, something written in Dickensian time is not going to have the same, you know, moral leanings as something that's yeah. written today. So you're going to say, well, that's just full of hate speech, you know, mm -hmm. is incorrect. Yeah. And that's actually interesting because large language models or large AI models aren't going to be able to, is, is the term like moral relativism? where you try not to judge people by the morals of the modern day when you're reading it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Yeah. They're not going to be able to do that. So that's going to be interesting because that, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Cause you know, they talk about the, one of the concerns about AI is making it biased. And if you're weighting it with this, what, you know, what the you modern, just mentioned, the, yeah, modern, the modern versus, moral yeah. relativism of everything that's taken place in the past because they didn't think the same way we do today. I think that's going to mess a whole bunch of things up. Certainly going to lead to unexpected consequences when you ask it for information. And, and you know, it's just a, one of the annoying things about this is these people who have these opinions think they're, they're so modern and everything, but in a hundred years, their opinions are probably going to be shown to be just as terrible as they were a hundred years ago. Cause these people who have the same opinion of the majority of the, of the, uh, the majority, the people who they think are heinous or racist or bigoted or however you want to put it, uh, 150 years ago, those were the majority of people also at that time. So it's, they are, they are no different. If they put themselves in that time frame, they would have been just as bigoted or just as racist as those folks. Yeah. Because they hold the same opinion that the majority of people hold. They don't even think for themselves. Yeah. All right. I think we went a little deep on that one. But uh, the 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 end, yeah. kind of the, the takeaway from this is if you're going to rely on LLMs, we need to be able to trust the results. And right now we can't. We can't because OpenAI and other large language models are not being open and transparent about their training data, what they're doing to prevent poisoning and or detect poisoning. And we can't really see if it's being poisoned at all. So this is going to be a major issue for LLMs going forward. And that doesn't even get into the whole hallucinations thing either, where, Oof. you know, it just makes up stuff. We're going to talk about that. Which leads us into the next article. Actually, lawyers cited six fake cases made up by ChatGPT. A judge calls it unprecedented. This comes to us from Ars Technica. So a lawyer asked ChatGPT to find references to precedents for a case he was working on. And ChatGPT, of course, provided six references, including Way to go, ChatGPT. What's that? Way to go, ChatGPT. Good job. <laughs> so the problem with the, with the six cases was none of them existed. Well, I, I'm sorry, five of the six did not exist. And it it didn't just make up the cases. It made up quotes and what was the other term for it? In the other, you know, quotes and references from the cases, the, these made up cases also. Citations? Citations. Yeah. yeah. And another similar example, example I heard about earlier, both of these were on the Hard Fork podcast last week. If you want to dive deeper into there, we're not going to talk about the specific details here. We're more talking about the security implications. And a similar example, a professor fed his students' essay results for their last three assignments in the chat GPT and asked if it had wrote those essays. ChatGPT said yes. So the professor apparently denied the students their diplomas and threatened to fail them in the class unless they completed an alternative assignment. And it was all figured out because it turns out that ChatGPT 
says that said that at the time for anything that you entered into it. Yeah, I, I think that that professor was just projecting on onto the students because uh, the lazy professor thought his students were lazy and would ask ChatGPT to do the work work for him just like he did. Hey, <laughs> it'd be funny if it came out that he created the assignments using ChatGPT. He was having ChatGPT grade them as well. <laughs> Can you do that? I kind of want to paste something in there and ask it. <laughs> yeah, he, he he miraculously had this TA who was helping him out named Chap. Uh, Chad. Chad G. <laughs> but this 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 reminded me of a, a quote often attributed to, to Mark Twain, where he says, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that ain't so. Yeah, that sounds about right. And neither of these, like I said, are directly security related. But, 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 I imagine that your risk and compliance group is getting a whole bunch of inquiries right now on what is the policy and procedure around using ChatGPT. Well, hopefully they're they're inquiring. I imagine a lot of companies are just starting to use it. If you checked your proxy logs, you'd probably see a whole bunch of callouts to OpenAI.com. <laughs> And you may yeah, want to well, check thankfully, that. most people can't log in, though, because it's too busy. Day, day. It's too busy. <laughs> yeah, and some companies are going full speed ahead and integrating LLMs into their products and workflows. And the, and the real question here is, what are you doing to make sure that the output is real? Or are you just telling people not to use it right now? Because that's probably not going to fly either. And I'm curious if this needing to validate the output, does it remove much of the advantages? I mean, I can see where if you're writing something where the facts and being specifically accurate doesn't matter as much, and you can just sort of read over and be like, yeah, that looks pretty good. But if you're using it for any type of work, like, I don't know, a lawyer or an essay or something like that, where you actually have it needed to be factually correct, doing the work of validating, it seems like it'd be almost as much work as just writing it yourself. Yeah, it seems like it might be useful for like opinion-based things. Yeah, where nobody cares if you're right or wrong anyways. Yeah, or or to get the general feel or the general the general summary of something without specifics. I saw there was a actually my brother's a writer. Well, he's trying to break through as a break into it as a writer, and I sent him something. I saw there is a product now that if you give it a skeleton of a story, it'll write an initial draft for you. And then if you're having trouble like rewording a sentence, you're like, the sentence doesn't seem right. You can highlight the sentence and ask it to reword it. And it'll, you know, create like three or four sentences that say the same thing, but in different ways. You can ask it to like rewrite a sentence with more descriptive language, stuff like that. Hmm, well, if you did, but well, I, I guess it, that would depend on the error right there. Because if you had to do that yeah. for every sentence, that would be, well, would I, I guess. I guess what I'm thinking there, though, is what I, I guess to drill down to specifically what I was thinking it was good at is generating the first draft. Because mm. I feel like an awful lot of times you sit there staring at your, like you're, you're supposed to write a report, you're supposed to write a policy, you're mm. supposed to mm -hmm. create something, and you, you start off with a blank screen and you're sitting there like, what, what goes right. first? To get you over the first hurdle. Kind yeah, of it's always easier. It's always easier. And this is why, and I figured this out. This is taking me years to figure out. This is why bosses always tell you to go write the first draft because then it's a lot easier for them to edit it and be like, no, no, that's not what I meant. No, this is what I meant. Which oh, is very frustrating, but. <laughs> well, that's why you have interns. So they handed you and you handed the intern. Hey, start this. <laughs> yep, yep. But I'm sure I'm actually, that'd be interesting. I, I would really be willing to bet there would be like a policy-based AI. Like, please write me a policy for such and such that includes this point, this point, and this point, and it'll spit out a policy for you to edit. 
Yeah, that would be actually be pretty handy because like if you're writing in a an IR plan, there are there are, you know, dozens of shells out there for yep. what an IR plan yep. should be. And they're probably like. gonna be like eighty percent the same between companies. Cause that would be I mean, it would be pretty handy. Let's say you wanted to write a policy around something that a lot of other organizations already have policies for. If you could take the take the what you want the policy for, feed it into the AI which also had access to your other company's policies, then they could maybe, the AI might be able to tweak that policy based on what's on the internet to close, more closely align with where your existing policies are. That, so that would be even less work for you to go back and you know, correct or edit because it's using the shell somewhere else, but the biases or the, the, the leanings or the, the, the aversion to risk or, or whatever that, that permeate your existing policies. No, that's good. Yeah. Cause it could then connect with, I'm thinking like with the Microsoft Copilot, I could connect and look at your org structure and probably figure out like phone trees and stuff for you. I could probably figure out like who's responsible for various things, various parts of the process, but if you've got similar job titles to other places. Mm-hmm. You may have like a questionnaire where it asks you, like, is this important? Do you think that it should do this? Do you, you know, and then, and then incorporates those. So you could just do basically an interview, like sit down for an hour with the AI and do an interview. And then it spits out a policy that matches to your organization. Oh, right. Actually, that might be a pretty good business model to come up with an, a policy generating AI that, like you said, has a, not just a prompt, but, you know, a series of prompts that must be consumed in order to produce a policy and depending on what that policy is, the prompts change and, or for, for the creation. Uh, and it'd be most, most convenient if you could do it orally. Although I guess some people would prefer to type it, but. No, yeah, you have a, you have a toggle. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm actually curious about this because I heard they mentioned in the hard fork podcast, well, was it the hard fork podcast or a different podcast? Some podcast I was listening to recently that was talking about that there are some types of work that LLMs, excuse me, that LLMs are really good at and some types they're bad at. And they were suggesting that when you ask it to do work it's bad at, it tells you that, you know, this is not a good use of this AI. It, it may come out with hallucinations. But I haven't been able to find a list of what types of work LLMs are really good at, which makes me curious. But they said that but didn't give any examples? They did not. <laughs> As a podcast. Yeah. And, and Sounds the, like something we'd do. Someone else should do this thing. I was curious if the companies creating these models can build some guardrails into the product. Because the biggest, I think the biggest issue here is if ChatGPT doesn't know, it doesn't know it no, it doesn't know, and therefore states confidently the wrong answer. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like they need to add some way in there to tell. Yeah, that it's, it's just a prediction engine. Yeah. Yeah, like maybe add like a confidence level behind it. And you know, this actually goes back to what we were talking about with the other one. There's 100,000 articles or things on the internet that all agree and zero that disagree. Then I don't know how it would keep track of it, but maybe you could say, or maybe there's some way in the prediction for like the the how how sure it is that this is the next letter and you could combine those into a score that's like, I am 75% sure this is correct. Well, if you could do sentiment analysis... In summaries, you know, you'd think that it could then use those that those capabilities to come up with a similar output. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. 
I don't know. It's math all the way down, and I was never very good at it. Yeah, it doesn't help that they don't really know how it works. I keep hearing people talk about so. It's a little horrifying. <laughs> you ever seen Titan AE? No, I've heard it's good. It is that. really good, actually. But there's a character in that. It's like some kind of mad, mad scientist character named Goon, mm -hmm. and he 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 makes this box in his sleep, and he wakes up, and it's got this giant red button on it, and he goes into this diatribe like, I I don't know what it does, but I want to push the button. It's like, that kind of seems like the AI. It's like, oh, I built this thing, but I don't know what it does, but I want to have it do the thing. So, you know, you're on the edge of hitting that, 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 you know, the red button in space madness that runs to be reference. And so this seems like a very similar kind of concept. You know, I built this thing, but I don't know what it does, but I want to make it go. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But the bottom line of this whole thing is... You know, AIs, at least at this point, are still unreliable and have to be double-checked. You can't rely on the AI to give you an exact output. You know, if you're, if you're looking for facts, you're going to have to definitely make sure that what, whatever but the facts that it produces are, in fact, facts. <laughs> in fact, facts. So it almost, it almost negates the value, kind of, if you have to double-check everything. It, I guess it depends on the the volume of what it produces and how easily it is to double check whether that is correct or not. You know, if it if it takes le less time to double check than it does to produce, then it certainly may save some work there. Yeah, I think this depends on like what you said before. If it's fact based and you have to be correct, this may not be the right tool for the job. But if it's opinion based or if it's more about volume. <laughs> than it is about <laughs> being accurate, then maybe the large language model is your your answer. All right. Finally, in our third article in our weekly exploration of inauthentic inauthenticity in AI, this is another. I saw this in a That's newsletter sick. that I subscribe to. It's called Equa Equat. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's French. I took Spanish. But it is a live transcription tool that assists in interviews. It is a Python-based tool, which unfortunately currently only works on Windows because it requires a window. It's using Windows Windows-based extensions to do the transcriptions. It's probably not too hard to translate into Mac. But it was, it was released. It uses the default speaker and the default microphone as transcription sources, and then suggests responses from ChatGPT based on the conversation that it is transcribed. So David and I discussed this several weeks ago. I don't remember if it was the podcast or if it was like while we were having lunch or in one of our other conversations, but this seems like a natural extension. If I could see it coming, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> Why you're saying you're you're not you're you're prescient. I'm I've always been good at implementation. I've never been good at blue sky thinking. <laughs> but I did I took a poke through the script and I don't know if anybody else reads Daniel Meisler, but he talks about personas, I'm sure he's not the only person to mention it, but it's the one that I saw it from, where you can get more accurate results if you ask ChatGPT to pretend that it is a specific someone, you know, answer this question like you're a doctor. But this one, it uses a very casual persona. So I actually think with the default settings, it would go fairly poorly in an interview. You need to change the persona to something like, you are a professional cybersecurity researcher and are interviewing for a position please answer questions, you know, 
or please create answers to the questions found in the transcript based on this or something like that. Well, that is if you can't read it and paraphrase its response. Yeah, that's uh, true. But it, it doesn't help you if it's because it because it I, I have to I didn't I wish I'd written down, but it says the persona is something like you are having a conversation with a casual friend of yours or something like that. And it's going to probably drop colloquialisms and slang and contractions and stuff that you don't necessarily want to use in an interview. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you're doing a word for word, like yeah, I said, versus yeah. <laughs> just reading it and being able to say, oh, I understand the gist of what it's saying and then putting it in hey, your own. Hey, bud, how are <laughs> you doing? That was a wicked question. <laughs> if you're, oh man, what was it, the anchor man? Oh, where he reads anything on the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know he'll read anything on the teleprompter or whatever. <laughs> I can't remember what his character's name was now. Ron Burgundy. Ron Burgundy. Ron yep. Burgundy. Yep. And if you're Ron Burgundy, then you're going to have trouble with this for sure. <laughs> He's really good at reading though. So, and I don't know how you would interview someone who's using this or how you would tell, like, I, I suppose you could run it yourself and see what kind of prompts it sends out. But yeah, I mean, that would be pretty good when you've only got one of these things, but when there are, when there are going to be a million of these different translation services, each yeah. one that are a little bit different. And ChatGPT, they definitely made a point that ChatGPT is non-deterministic, so it's not going to spit out the exact same stuff every time. So that's definitely, but you could probably do this and like look for themes if it's giving the same themes mm -hmm. and and how will this improve in the future? Like, like what if it could feed directly in an earbud? I mean, it's one, and the next thing you do from this is you take the transcription and put it into a text to speech and now you can, you know, play it into your ear. Uh, they FDA just approved the testing for Neuralink. I can just, this is going to be <laughs> built into all of our brains. We're all going to have prompts. That are going to like, we're talking to somebody and a prompt is going to come up on our eyeball or something like, how should you respond? Just like email now, when you type in your Gmail and it comes up or G chat and it comes up with suggested responses. Oh man, um, that would be handy when you're talking to your wife. Like, <laughs> oh God, <laughs> it was like, don't say this. Oh no. Oh no, dear. I can't believe they did that. <laughs> yep. You can actually now, Descript, I'm sure there's other places that do this. You can train a, a voice model based on your voice. So technically you don't even, and, and Descript will do the text to voice. So you don't even need to attend the interview. You could set this. Oh my God. I wonder if anybody's done that yet. Just set it to go. Just, just set it to go and just like monitored it. Or, or even like you said, like just repeat, ver, just repeat verbatim what ChatGPT says as an experiment to see if you get the offer. You know, some, some enterprising reporter has got to do this in reality, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. go on interviews and use this and see how well they do, if they get the job or not. You know what? I didn't even think of this, but NPR's money podcast just did the opposite side of this. They used chat GPT to build the podcast and, and they were the, the three episodes ago, they were talking about it. They had it generate the, they, they fed it a paper, not all at once because ChatGPT couldn't handle all of it, but they fed it like sections of the paper and asked it to create questions based on those sections of the paper. And then they asked the questions of the authors of the paper and the authors of the paper were all like, that's a great question, which I know that's like a habit for podcast guests right, and yeah, people yeah. that's to buy you time. But in one of the questions, one of the questions was something about like, you know, how soon before it starts taking over from humans? Or some, there was some question like that. And the author was like, well, you know, 
like ChatGPT can't do what you're doing now. Like you're creating questions and asking really great questions about what the paper means. <laughs> <laughs> Completely destroy their credibility. <laughs> like, oh, throw that one out. So, so yeah, they're doing the other side of it. They're doing the create. I mean, shoot, man, maybe I should just feed my favorite AI. Maybe I should feed my favorite interview questions into this and have it ask the questions. Oh my God. No, no, that's a great idea. You feed it your 10 or 15 best questions. They answer the question and then AI compiles the transcript, creates a summary of their answers, and then, you know, makes a recommendation based on the results you got from the other candidates. And now we've got just AI on both sides interviewing and answering questions. Interviewing itself. <laughs> well, I, you know, it, it, it could help you evaluate your questions as well to say, hey, is this a good question? Oh, yeah. Because every interviewer has got like their pet question that they think is like the bee's knees. And I worked for the guy one time. <laughs> he said that every every time you interview somebody, he's asked them this question. Mm -hmm. If you were a drink, what kind of drink would you be? Cold. It's like, I was like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I know, but it's he thought, pointless. But he thought it gave him insight, right? I guess. I wonder, hold on. I'm going to ask ChatGPT that. Because <laughs> now I'm curious, like, what would, what would ChatGPT say about that? If you were a drink, what drink would you be? Like, that's the kind of question that like, you have to ask in these interviews because ChatGPT is like, wait, what the? <laughs> my answer oh my is God. water. All right. If I were a drink, I would be a refreshing and versatile fruit punch. Just like a fruit punch combines a variety of flavors, I, as an AI language model, have been tried and tried on a wide range of knowledge. And like, if they just read it straight out, that would be the tell. <laughs> I, as an AI language model. So I guess you can't just set the, the voice chat to go off because it's going to, it's going to include that. So think of me as a flavorful and adaptable digital companion ready to quench your thirst for knowledge and conversation. Well, you, get it. well you, have, you just have to change the prompt a little bit to say that, you know, Answer if, you, if were, you were a person, if you were a cybersecurity engineer and you were asked what kind of drink you are, what kind of drink would you be or something like that? So if you just prompted to say, you know, like you were talking about changing the persona. So if you yeah. change the persona up front, then everything oh. will hopefully be oh in my a God. context. Oh my God. All right. When? So I just did that. I just did that. And its answer was, if I were a cybersecurity engineer and asked what drink I am, I might consider myself a strong and robust cup of black coffee. Here's why. Vigilant and alert. Cybersecurity engineers need to be constantly vigilant and alert to identify and respond to potential threats. That's not true. Power and resilience. Cybersecurity engineers often deal with complex challenges and work under pressure. Black coffee with its strong and bold flavor symbolizes the power and resilience needed to tackle these challenges head on. And there's more, but I don't want to read all of it. I don't think but, it knows what a cybersecurity engineer does. No, no, but this is exactly the answer that you're the person you knew was looking for. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. to them, they would be like, wow, like they put a lot of thought into this. Right. In the two seconds between the question and the answer. Yeah, that's well, well no, that's you got to say to build into on. it as pauses. Yeah. You, well, you'd have to say like, that's a great question. Let me think about that. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. So why does this matter? Well, first of all, faking an interview just got a lot easier. If you're interviewing folks for technical positions, you should already be giving them technical tests in addition to your normal questions. People can fake normal questions. It's a lot harder to fake a technical test. So I would recommend you get started. Yeah. And you might just want to scrap phone interviews all together and require to do a camera on WebEx or Zoom for everything. Even, you know, even you use, when you used to do phone screens, you know, maybe you don't even do phone screens anymore because of this. 
Yep. And if you're on the interviewing side, get a quieter keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> or a directional microphone. <laughs> yeah. You can't hear it. Although I guess this this program, there's no typing because it just automatically transcribes. Yeah. You mentioned in here that you could ask questions that reference their resume. Yeah, that would be actually, that'd be probably the best way to tell if you ask them a question deliberately specific on their resume and they answer something wildly different. You're like, that was strange. Although you'd think they would know their resume well enough to know when to go off script, so to speak. Well, I mean, if they went off script though, and they didn't give a decent answer compared to the, mm, the yeah. you know, in the context of the rest of their answers, then I think that would, you know, because if you ask them this and they give you like that, that robust coffee answer, right? And then you ask yeah. them something about the resume and they're like, oh yeah, well I did the thing and it was great. <laughs> yeah. Then it's a little bit, doesn't fit in with the rest of the, the answers. Interestingly enough. So actually I was just thinking about that. I was like, what if they created their resume with chat GPT too? I just, I just typed in, create a resume for a security engineer with 10 years experience. And it adds, you know, spots in there for where you should put your phone number and email address. But like it added education, bachelor of computer science, certified ethical hacker, this P certified information security manager certifications that it would have no idea if I had. And it's got, you know, all kinds of stuff that I did at these companies that so skills. So it it's also got a list gives you a skills. list of companies too? Got a list that says previous position one company name, but then under that it has assisted in the design and implementation of security architectures and frameworks, conducted security assessments and audits to identify vulnerabilities and recommend appropriate security controls. Like it put down there a whole bunch of things that it would have no idea if I did or not. So yeah, well, I mean that's the thing about resumes too, and what people should be looking for the resumes is oh, what they did and why that was a good thing. Mm. Not just that they didn't, mm. but what was the what was the benefit or what was the improved outcome for them doing that thing? You know, I, I created you know a security architecture framework, which you know was leveraged in the organization and reduced the number of attacks or prevented the by X number or something like that. You know, to put it into a frame of you know why that thing was beneficial to have been done at all at where you were at versus the fact that you just did it. Yeah. So if you struggle with creating responses, not just to interview questions, but for anything, the sort of thing is going to get a lot more common. As a personal example, I struggle a lot with social media. I have a, a couple of social media accounts for my hobby, and it gives me so much anxiety. And for the podcasts, it gives me so much anxiety when people message me on social media, which is silly. I, I know it's silly. I know that it's a dumb thing to get anxious about, but it's a lot harder than it feels like it should be. Having something like this for social media would be amazing. And some chat programs already have something like this where they give you an auto reply, but it's usually a very simplistic auto reply that's only vaguely related to what they sent you. So the ability to like respond back, to be able to pick like one of four or five responses is going to be amazing, at least for yeah. me. <laughs> Especially when you, you they tie this into Google Glass. All right. What should you do about this? Deep fakes everywhere. At this point in time now, you can fake video. You can fake headshots. You can fake your voice. You can fake an interview. You can poison the results to make you seem amazing when they search you. And 100% chance within six months, there's a company that's going to be a startup that does this for candidates. For the low, low fee of $10,000 or something, they will guarantee you get a job. And they, they're not going to guarantee you keep it. <laughs> but they're going to be like, we can get you that job. No, they, I mean, they're, they're going to charge lower than that because they can yeah, work on right, volume. Yeah, you're right. 
Yeah, if it's all AI, they can they can do a whole bunch of these at once. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, like the just depend on your mindset. You know, the future is awesome, or you know, this is going to be a total shit show. <laughs> I don't know. Why not how both? Turn out, you know. Yeah. Why not both? It's like the whatchamacallit. Or no, it's the, it was that beer commercial where they had lawyer rodeo. Lawyer rodeo. Oh, the, like the Budweiser. No, it wasn't Budweiser. It was some beer. Yeah. yeah like where it was like, it tastes great. Like less filling. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like, why, why not, not both? both? Yeah, yeah. I used to love those Damn. commercials. Yeah. Lawyer rodeo is the absolute best one though. My favorite. Dude running out of shoot with his briefcase. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Have you not seen that, 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 that ad? You gotta check it out. It's hilarious. But it looks like that's all we have for today. Thanks for following, for joining us. And follow us at Serengeti Sick on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.